Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Will you stand with me as we read through God's Word? If you'd like to follow along with the reading and need a Bible, they can be found in the seatbacks in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, and can be found on page 974 in that Bible. Please follow along with me as I read. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this church. Got to pray for uh, Jason this morning as he delivers uh, the message through Galatians. God, I just pray that you would uh, just keep it on our hearts and remind us that we are saved through faith and not works. God, I pray that you would uh, bless the message this morning. Uh, I pray that we would be able to use it uh, and that people would see, see this message in us this week. Pray for these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you can grab a seat. If you're new around here, uh, we typically go through a book of the Bible. We are nine weeks deep in the book of Galatians. And so if it feels like we're just kind of picking up where we left off last week, it's exactly because we're just picking up where we left off uh, last week. We uh, have sermons on uh, podcasts. We have sermons on YouTube and Facebook, all that sort of stuff. You can go back and get caught up uh, if you're new and wondering, man, they're just kind of jumping in. And uh, if you want to get caught up on that, you are more than welcome to. We, we capture that. We put it out there for you so that you can have that. Uh, the Bible is 66 books. It spans two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it has five covenants where God has met with his people and said, this is what I covenant toward you as you covenant toward me. Two of those covenants, one was with a guy named Abraham. We just read about him. We're going to talk about him and his wife today, and we're going to get in the nitty-gritty of their messed-up family. And so if you're not perfect today, this is a safe place as we talk about some per- people who aren't perfect, and we talk about the one who is perfect, and his name is Jesus. And so God made a covenant with Abraham and said that if you'll go where I send you, it's a place you've never been, you've never seen, but if you'll leave everything you've known and go... Um, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those with cur- who curse you, and I will make you the father of many, many nations. And this is, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so this is like how we believe the gospel, it's counted to us as righteousness. Our, our uh, righteousness is not by merit, it's not by deeds, it's not by things we've done, it's by trusting in the one who did them, and his name is Jesus. So the way that Abraham became a son of God became, I guess, an Old Testament Christian or a person of God is he believed what God said was true. So by faith, he trusted God. God told him they'd have a family. It was an interesting promise because at that time, Abraham was about 100 years old. His wife was about 100 years old, and they had not been able to have kids. So they were scratching their heads, wondering what God meant. And so they rock along. And then there's another covenant that that God makes that Abraham and Sarah actually do end up with a child. His name is Isaac. We'll read about him today in the text. Um, And that family becomes a people group, and eventually they find themselves living in Egypt because of a famine in the land that God had showed Abraham. So they had to leave, go down there, became such a large people group that 
uh, a Pharaoh rose up and said, hey, these people are raising in prominence. They're everywhere, you know? They took that cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply pretty dang serious. They have done that here, and we need to figure out something to keep them inferior so we can stay superior. So that's what he does. And they create a form of slavery there where the... the uh, Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. God raises up a leader named Moses. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt and back into the promised land. And as they're in the wilderness wandering, God shows up at the top of Mount Sinai and makes a covenant with Moses. And he says this. So basically that son who would be born through, or Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. And there's going to be a son who's going to be born who's going to rescue God's people from their sins. He's going to crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. And so what we learn is when God gives the law to Moses, and the law was a big deal, it was the Ten Commandments, it was a civil law, ceremonial law, dietary law, told them how to do church. Part of the uh, law was for every family to, at the Day of Atonement, bring an animal that would be sacrificed for the forgiveness of their sins for another year. They'd have a priest who mediated between them and God. There was a high priest that mediated between all the people and God. And this was the whole system that God set up for Moses to set the Israelites apart as they were becoming a theocracy there in Israel. They were becoming a government and, and a country and had kings and armies and all that sort of stuff as they're establishing themselves. He says, this is how people should live. Now that should do two things when God gave them the law that showed them what righteousness is. The first thing is to show the Israelites, I can't do this. I cannot live up to this law. There's things in me that are bad. I want bad things for me and for other people. And so every year at the Day of Atonement, we're reminded that I can't keep the law, so I make a sacrifice for my family to be forgiven of their sins as we long for a Messiah to come who will be that great priest and be that great sacrifice and will bring all of us near to the Father. And His name is Jesus. So Jesus comes and He fulfills the law. He fulfills that covenant, and in Jesus is righteousness, because Jesus never ate pork to the glory of God. Jesus kept the civil law. He kept the ceremonial law. He was the fulfillment of the law. So when you believe in Jesus, you get righteousness in place of your unrighteousness, and Jesus takes death in place of our life. So we trade places with him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God took him who knew no sin, caused him to be sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus comes and basically says, here's the deal. Love God and love people. Because when we trust in Jesus, we don't, we don't live under the law that are all the boundaries that tell us this is how you need to live. Because so here's the deal. Apart from Holy Spirit especially, the reason that the law had to say, hey, don't sleep with someone that you're not married to in a heterosexual monogamous marriage is because you will want to sleep with someone you are not married to outside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. And the reason it says, hey, don't covet your neighbor's stuff is because you are going to want to covet your neighbor's stuff. You, you with me? You, you get it. And so we had this instructor that said, this is how we're supposed to live. And, we're, and all of us were like, well, I don't want to live like that. We're like, I know that's why you're going to have to bring the lamb on the day of atonement. Okay. Jesus comes, lives like that, ascends back into heaven after he raises from the dead and sends Holy Spirit to anyone who would believe in their heart that Jesus raised from the dead and confess with their lips that he's the Lord of their life. And Holy Spirit comes, and now instead of us just needing rules or rails, we have new desires. Man, we've been declared innocent because we've trusted in Jesus. So in the book of life in heaven, our names are written down now so that we've gone from 
unrighteous to righteous. We've gone from guilty to innocent because of Jesus. And we have new desires to where we actually can feel like, oh, I'm, I'm I feel terrible when I lie. I feel terrible after I use sex in a way that glorifies me or our bodies and not Jesus. I feel terrible when I rip people off. Like there's, there's this way we live that is sin and it makes us ache and we want to repent and walk with Jesus because there's more joy when we walk with Jesus. That's because we've gone from an employee type relationship where God is like this taskmaster telling us how to live to our dad who sent Holy Spirit to make us family and make us his sons and daughters. And so that's the work that Paul is doing in Galatians 4, 21 through 31 is continuing to point back at Abraham's life and point back at the two different covenants between the, the Mosaic covenant, which said, this is how the Messiah will live. And then the covenant of grace, which is the Messiah himself, Jesus, and how we relate and worship different than we did whenever we just had to be Jewish. Okay, So in verse 21, Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So what had happened is there was a Christian church that was planted. They had a pastor. They sing songs to Jesus. They got together, broke open God's word. People were meeting Jesus. People were being baptized. People were being discipled. Then a group came in who elevated the law of Moses up to the level of Jesus. They cherished the law of Moses so much. And you got to understand where these people were coming from. I know we always paint them as really bad people with really bad intent, or at least I do, because I just do. But here's where they're coming from. As a little boy, for years, they grew up having a priest bringing the animal on the Day of Atonement. They didn't eat any pork because they were told it was unclean. All the little boys on a certain day after their birth were circumcised to show that they walked in this covenant that God gave to Abraham, that they were going to be different than all the surrounding nations. Their whole life they related to God this way. It was the closest thing to church. It was the closest thing to the gospel that they had. And then Jesus shows up and says, it's me, boys. It's me. The law, I did it. The priest, they point to me. The king, he points to me. I'm Messiah. Like you can, you can go to breakfast with me now and you can eat all the pork you want to the glory of God because I am your righteousness. If you believe in me, you get credit because I fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish the law. He didn't delete the law. It wasn't like it was a bad idea. He did all of the law, so it's accomplished in Jesus. And so there's people who thought either that guy's nuts, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar, he's full of it, or he is the Lord. And so people in that day in real time had to try to figure out Jesus. So then you have Peter, people like Peter, James, and John, the disciples who were always teetering back and forth between, is he Lord, liar, or lunatic? You know. And finally, when they receive Holy Spirit, they're all kind of got the deal down with like, okay, it's Jesus. We saw him alive, then we saw him dead, then we saw him alive again. I believe. Even Jesus' brother James wasn't a believer till Jesus raised from the dead. And then he was like, all right. I'm in. I've never seen anything like that before. And so there were people who just could not get used to, we don't have a priest anymore, now we have a pastor. And the pastor doesn't pray in our place. He teaches us how to pray so we can all have our prayers heard by God. They really struggled with this idea that, you mean now we don't have a priest, we don't do the Day of Atonement, we don't go to synagogue on Saturday, we're doing church now on Sunday, and all these white folk are showing up, you know, and they don't have any idea who Abraham is or Isaac is, and none of them are circumcised. I still don't understand how they knew that, by the way. That's another weird thing, but they did somehow. And so... So there was this confusion, and this group of people called the Judaizers tried to get everyone else to live like they were Jewish as they were Christians because they believed that was the only way God would be pleased with them. 
And Paul's saying, those of you wanting to live under the law and keep all the law for your righteousness, he says, don't you even listen to it. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Paul is going back to a story all the Judaizers knew because they would understand the first five books of the Bible. And oftentimes, the first five books of the Bible can also be considered the law. They're the books and writings of Moses. But what Paul is going back to is there was a time God told Abraham, I will give you a son. They were old and they believed God and didn't believe God, just like you believe God and don't believe God sometimes. We hear promises and we believe them. We want to believe them. They sound too good to be true. And sometimes in our heart, we start to force stuff in our life instead of just faithing and trusting in God for that he's going to provide what's best. Sometimes we force things and we make a mess. That's what happened with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had been walking with the Lord for several years, going to the place they're supposed to go, getting blessed when people bless them, other people getting cursed when they curse them, and they had not yet had a baby. And so their family has become this great big organization and company. Abraham was acquiring wealth. It was kind of an agrarian type thing. He had livestock and some grain and stuff like that. And they hired people to be a part of their business. One of those was a woman named Hagar. And it calls her a slave, but I want you to think more of like an an employee, okay? And Sarah as the free woman is the owner of the company and Hagar as the employee. Sarah comes to Abraham one day and says, hey, There's this lady, Hagar, she works for me, and I think you should sleep with her, and she'll give us a baby, and then we'll raise that baby up, and that'll be the promise that we have um, from God. Now, Abraham should have said, I'm sorry, what? Instead, like, there's a trap in there. Like, fellas, that is, (laughs) don't want to go along with that one, all right? And so, like, and I know some of you are like, see, polygamy's in the Bible. It's never in there as a good idea, okay? It's never in there as a good idea. And so Abraham says, okay, he sleeps with Hagar. They have a son, because that's what happens. And they named him Ishmael. And this tension rose up in the family right away. It says that Hagar looked on Sarah with contempt because she saw Sarah now as inferior because she couldn't have kids. Hagar saw herself as superior. And we see somewhere in the text there's some tension between even Ishmael and Isaac, who's the son who ends up being born to Sarah. And so, and what ends up having to happen is Abraham has to say, Hagar, Ishmael, you can't live here anymore. I can't have two wives. This didn't, this isn't working. It's a bad idea. And he doesn't just drive them out and drive them away. They're blessed by the Lord. They made a promise that Ishmael will be uh, many descendants and have great wealth and all that sort of stuff. And, and he did. But, but what the, the point is here is there's a way to faith and believe God's promise And their specific promise at that specific time was, I'll heal and open Sarah's womb, and you guys will have a baby. You know, you'll have your geriatric pregnancy, and it's going to be okay. And his name will be Isaac. And that is what happened. But they tried to force it. And it makes me wonder, you you know what I mean? Like there's times where we, we force the promises of God rather than faithing in them and living them out. What areas of your life are you doing the same sort of thing? As it relates to dating and marriage, how many of us, we find somebody who likes us, they're kind of cute, and you're like, oh, this has to work out, this has to work out, this has to work out. And someone says, are they a Christian? And then you go, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Like, well, how serious are you guys? Well, we're, you know, we're, we're dating, and so you bring them around your Christian friends, and their friends are like, oh, I don't like that guy. 
Or your guys are like, I don't know about that girl, but you're like, you guys just don't understand the situation. I'm praying about it. God's going to save them. I know they're in a cult right now, but it's going to be fine. You know, we're living together. You know, we're just, I don't, it's going to be okay. God bless what I'm doing. You, you know, there's a profile of a person, especially if you're a Christian. Christians marry Christians. And Christians marry Christians who are going the same direction that you want to go with your life, you know? I had a guy tell me one time, uh, uh, he felt called to go plant churches overseas. And he's like, my wife don't want to go. What can I say to make her want to go? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> Stop it. You're not called. He's like, how do you know? I said, because she don't want to go. If she wanted to go, well, then maybe we'd say you're called. But stuff like, it's a big deal. Like, where do you want to go with your life? Do you love Jesus? Do they love Jesus? Where do they want to go with their life? You have a profile of a person. There are people who are outside the profile. I don't think there's one person, one fish, and all the sea that you're supposed to be with. There's a kind of person who worships Jesus that you're supposed to say, till death do us part, we're going to be buried beside each other one day, and if the resurrection of Christ, like we raise from the dead before you know, it's all said, we'll raise up together, up from our graves, be zombies for Jesus, it'll be great, you know? But that's the idea for marriage. It's not someone who you're just kind of into and they're into you, like it's someone you build a life with. And that life needs to be two people worshiping Jesus, raising families, building a legacy where everyone's getting pointed to Jesus. Sometimes we force it. We ask God to bless things that he said, I don't bless that. And parenting, kind of shooting from the hip today, but um, there's, there's three C's to parenting. Three C's, and I'm a Baptist preacher, so they're all you know, alliterated. It's you know, easy for note-taking, even if it's not on the screen. But parents, what we see in the Scriptures, we see from God. We see where we should connect with our kids, we should correct our kids, and we should cultivate our kids. So number one, you should get to know your kids. You should you know, bring them home and blah, 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 do all that baby talk. And they look at you all weird because they're like, I know how to talk. I just can't do it yet. I don't know what it is you're trying to say. You know, but uh, you, you connect with them, you get in the floor with them, you roll around with them. Dad, you take one for the team, you go down to your knees sometimes because they're just that right height, and you connect with your kids. And you, if you're going to correct your kids, you have to do that from a foundation of connection. That's the way it works. That's the essence of the gospel. God, show, God shows up in our lives, reveals himself to us, and says, I love you, I love you. And because I love you, here's better for your life. Okay? So we connect, we correct, like our kids are going to have bad ideas. And on the other side of their idea is usually death or jail or broken limbs. And we have to say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. You need to live inside some life-giving boundaries. And then the other thing we need to do is cultivate our kids. Our kids are going to be confused. They're going to want things for themselves. I think one of the dangerous things we can tell our kids is you can be anything you want to be. It was so helpful to me when my dad told me, you can't be anything you want to be. And I get the heart behind that, like we want to build our kids' dreams. But sometimes we need to help shape our kids' dreams. We need to figure out, what are you good at? Like if you're four foot two, you're probably not going to play in the NBA. You know, that's just, that's the way God made you. What are you strong at? What are you weak at? What are you good at? How do I help cultivate your life and set you up for great opportunities to be successful? But what we can do sometimes is just control our kids. You know, when our kids are little, we lead with statements. When our kids get older, we need to start asking questions. 
And sometimes we just keep making statements. We just have rules. We think that bedtimes and we think that curfews and we think that a list of do's and don'ts is going to build our kids and shape them. It works when they're so small that you're bigger than them, but one day you will look up to your kids and all of that won't work anymore. The controlling doesn't work. It can work for a season, but that's not the idea of parenting. It's connection, correction, and cultivating, not controlling. What are areas of your life you're forcing things? Like God has given us principles, God has given us wisdom, and you don't have time to wait on that, so you're going to force it. One thing I've seen a church do sometimes is with evangelism, where we just try to force people to, to pray a prayer, believe in Jesus. Like Halloween is coming up. God gave us a missionary mandate. He said to make disciples of all the nations. So I think that we could go around, like we could have a haunted house on Halloween, okay? We could get some of the fellas to dress up like Michael Myers and Freddie and all that stuff. And ladies, you guys could like scream a lot, make it really weird in here. We could trap a bunch of people in here and say, you don't get out of here unless you pray this prayer. I bet we'd baptize so many people the next week. But I also don't think that's what sharing the gospel really looks like. I think we have to say, you know, you suck, but we love you a lot. Soak it in love, you know, like so you can find your sin and not to be mean to beat people up with it. But so we, you can't be a, like the first day in Christianity is like, boom, we go down in humility. We get low and make much of Jesus. In religion, it's like you climb your first step up, you're climbing up out of this pit. In Christianity, Jesus gets down in the pit and pulls us out, Okay. And so we have to say, I'm a sinner, so we have to tell the truth. Here's the commandments, here's how we break them, but here's Jesus, our rescuer, and we trust the gospel. We go around saying, I'm a Christian, do you want to be a Christian? People say yes, and you tell them how to be, and they become one. Like, Holy Spirit wants there to be Christians, we want there to be Christians, so we make churches, and we preach the gospel, and we invite our friends to church, or we tell our friends about Jesus, and many, many people will believe when you talk to them about Jesus. I'm, I don't mind using emotion, but I don't think we have to trap everybody in a room and say you can't get out unless you pray this prayer. I think that would be forcing a promise, not faithing in the way God designed the world to work. And so what God is saying is, Abraham had a bad idea, Sarah had a bad idea, Abraham slept with a woman he shouldn't have slept with, that created a son, and that son was not a child of promise because it didn't go through the healed womb of Sarah like God said it was going to. They came up and conjured their own plan, and it didn't work. And so now Paul is saying, now that you historically know about that, let's use that as a metaphor for what's happening in the church right now, uh, in, in the Galatian church that we're reading about. Uh, Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically, or you think of the word metaphor. He says, these women are two covenants. He's talking about Sarah, and he's talking about Hagar. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, and he's saying to the Christians in Galatia that I'm writing to, Men and women, but he uses patriarchal terminology. He says, you brothers like Isaac. So Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah. God healed Sarah's womb, gave them this son Isaac. He says, you are children of promise because you're believing the promise of God for your salvation. You're not believing that you did this thing that made God like you. You're believing that Jesus lived, died, raised from the dead, and that saved you, and now by faith... 
alone and the work of Christ alone, you're a child of promise. He said, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So what he's saying is, remember back when Hagar looked at contempt upon Sarah and it made trouble for Sarah. Because God made a promise to Sarah, not to Hagar. God promised Sarah that she would be in on this family of promise that would be fruitful and multiply and all that stuff. He didn't make that with her. And then also, something in the Scripture lets us in on a little rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac. And finally, Abraham had to say, you guys can't live here anymore. We can't. This doesn't work. Y'all be blessed. Here's, you're going to be okay. Here's the alimony. Whatever it is, whatever it looked like, they were supported. They were okay, but they could not stay together like it was. And so he says, what does the Scripture say? They know the answer to that because they probably have the first five books of the Bible memorized. They said, cast out the slave woman and her son. So that's Hagar and Ishmael. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So that would be Sarah. And he says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the free woman. So what he's trying to say here is this. There's a group in the church who elevate the law of Moses to the level of the life of Jesus. And they're saying, I don't mind if you pray to Jesus. I don't mind if you worship Jesus. You just need to know that believing in Jesus is not enough. Men, you need to be circumcised. Guys, we probably are going to need to worship on Saturday and go back to having a synagogue like we used to. I don't know where all the boundaries lay, but they had elevated this old way of relating to the Lord and, kept and held on to it and said, this is how people should become Christians. You can pray to Jesus if you want to, but fellas, you got to be circumcised. You can pray to Jesus if you want to, but we need to keep the law like it was. And Moses is saying, listen, you can't have that in your church. You're going to have to drive the Judaizers out. It's a false gospel. It's a false teaching. I know it's difficult and confusing because at one time, the law was the way we related to God. Now we relate to God through Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. That's ultimately what the problem is. And really what it's getting down to, Paul is revealing idolatry. And so here's what idolatry looks like. I know that we can think of an idol as like an image that we'd find in some jungle or some third world country somewhere or some voodoo doll or something weird like that. Here's what happens in our hearts, okay? There is creator and there is creation. Somebody asked me this last week, how would you explain to somebody what God is useful for? And I just thought, that is a terrible question, because it really is. It really tells on our heart. And I said, I reject the premise of the question. The question is, what are we for? Because God is not bound by space and time. He made those things. In the beginning was God. He made the heavens and the earth. He made plants and animals and people. He made angelic beings. Some of those angelic beings fell and revolted and rebelled and became demons led by Satan. But Satan is not creator. He's created by God. He's a toothless dragon. Uh, he's kind of like a vampire. He's not really going to come into your life as a Christian unless you're like, hey, you want to play? You want to come in? You know, he needs an invitation kind of. You know, I'm not making up, I guess I'm kind of making up some demonology there. And I grew up in the 80s. There was lots of vampire movies in the 80s. So, but that being said, Satan is created. God is creator. He has a limited power. God has unlimited power. Satan is not sovereign. God is sovereign. Can Satan junk with your life? You bet, if you let him, okay? But God is sovereign. God is in control. God is Father. God is Creator. What Paul is saying is the Judaizers had taken something made by God that at one time was, was the way that people worship God. And they cherished it and found it beautiful. They found the law beautiful and they found God useful. 
And that's what happens when idolatry creeps into our heart. We start to be fascinated with something God has made rather being fascinated with the maker. We do this the most in the suburbs with money, sex, and power. We begin to use people because we love sex rather than using sex to love our spouse inside of marriage. We will use uh, people to love money instead of using money to bless people and to build ministries. We'll use our power. We'll use people to love power and the superiority we feel over the inferior rather than using power to disciple others and build others and platform others and help them grow and be cultivated into all that they are supposed to be. Okay? So we, this, that's idolatry. When we take even a good thing, we make it an ultimate thing. And in fact, we're more, we find it more beautiful than the creator of the thing himself, and that's God. God made the law, and, he, and Jesus comes as creator and fulfills the law. And Moses is saying it can't have both. And if you want to be under the law, that's just death and hell. Be under Jesus. Okay? So when they, they made an idol out of the law, they created a religion. And here's what religion always does. Religion will always starve compassion and feed comparison in our hearts. I mean, we can make up a religion right now. I did it in the 9 a.m. It works, so I'll do it in this one. Three minutes left on the clock. Here's a religion. Let's make it up. The, the Cowboys Club. Okay? Here's, how, here's what it's going to look like. We're going to start a cult, all right? A religion. And there's three steps. Number one, you have to cheer for the Cowboys tonight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number two is you have to wear cowboy's apparel. And number three, I don't know if there's a third one anymore. <laughs> number three, you, I don't know. You have to post something on Facebook about it. So here's what happens. is in our hearts, we find ourselves superior to other people who don't like our team. And what can happen is not only do we need to be superior to those on the outside, we need to be superior to those on the inside. And so like, I'm going to prove how devoted I am because I'm going to bubble wrap my truck for my team. And if you don't bubble wrap your truck, you don't really care. And so all of a sudden, I'm going to lead this thing, not because of my character, but because of my commitment. I'm more devoted to this thing than anybody else. I'm using all my money, all my time, everything for this thing because it's giving me my identity, which is a hard place to get identity because they haven't won anything since the early 90s. But anyways, I know, I know, I know. Anyways... That's how it works. That's what religion does. And I know that's silly and that's absurd, but think about the things that you draw lines through and in your own heart and in your own life. Who are the inferior? Who are the superior? Who are you comparing yourself against? You can use church to do it. You can use morals to do it. And, and you're always good because you're not as bad as the people you compare yourself to. You're always right because you're not as wrong as the people that you compare yourself to. You're always successful because you're not as unsuccessful as the people that you compare yourself to. That's what religion does. It starves compassion. It's hard to have compassion, and it's hard to forgive someone you feel superior to. Okay? Religion feeds comparison, and religion makes Jesus useful. The Judaizers were happy for Jesus to come on the scene because Jesus was a starting point for them to launch back to the law of Moses and try to get everybody to live under the law again. But the gospel is not religion. Religion is do these things so God will love you. The gospel is God loves you and Jesus did these things so you could be saved. And that changes everything about us. So the gospel starves comparison. In fact, for a Christian, whenever we're sinned against and, and wounded by words and deeds, the reality is we can kind of see ourselves in the eyes of those who have hurt us. 
We know that I'm plenty capable of saying those things. I think it was Charles Spurgeon had a, heard a preacher complaining one time, man, this guy said this thing about me. And Spurgeon was like, man, you've said far worse about that guy. Let it go. You know, like we're all capable of sinning and wounding with words and deeds. The gospel is an equalizer. It puts all of us in the category of, of guilty. And then Jesus moves us over to innocence by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. And so religion gives us 10 rules, things we really wish we could do, but we don't do them because we're scared we go to hell if we do them. And the gospel, when we love Jesus, this, we get a dad, and dad gives us ways to live our lives that won't bring death. It, you know, it brings life. These are life-giving boundaries. And because of Holy Spirit in our life, we actually have the desire to want to live in a way that rolls up into worship of God. And so under the Judaizers and under the law, religion makes God a taskmaster, but the gospel makes God our father. That's what Paul is saying. Why would you be slaves or employees in the kingdom when you can be sons and daughters in the kingdom? And if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are children of promise and children have dads. And so what this means is we get to crawl in the lap of dad and ask him, how does the world work? We get to take same-sex attraction. We get to take gender confusion. We get to take the grudges we have with people that, that let us down. We get to take the, the meanness in our heart over somebody who thinks differently than we do. And we get to go to our dad and not go to a list of rules that says, if you do this, you're bad. If you do this, you're good. But we go to a dad and say, I don't understand how it works. I have these thoughts and these ideas that I don't know if they're good for me. And dad gets to love us with truth and say, here's how I made the world. I know. I created it. I made sex. I know what it's for. I know it feels good. It's supposed to. It was my idea. Here's the way that it works. Here's how you're supposed to use it. Hey, here's what family is for. It was my idea. I know how it works. I'm called your dad for a reason. I know how to build a family. Trust me in this. Like, hey, how do we do church? Hey, Jesus has an idea. He made the church. Let's ask him how we should do this. We have a dad. You have a dad. And there's nothing you can do that's going to make him not love you. There's no conversation you can't have with him. And so those answers were going to come through God's word. They're going to come through your community group. They're going to come through maybe some pastoral biblical counseling that you might need at some point. But you can ask those questions and you can take those weaknesses here. God loves you enough to say, you can't be anything you want to be. I designed the world a certain way. And if you bend around that, man, you will live in a flourishing, life-giving way. We have a dad. Why would we trade a dad for a list of rules when we can have a life-giving relationship with a father? I know some of you didn't have a dad. I know some of you, the dad you did have, he was neglectful or he was abusive. But God's a good and perfect dad. He gives good and perfect gifts to his kids. He promises that everything that happens in our life will be redeemed in some way for our good and for his glory. Whether the crappy is happening or the happy is happening, God promises that he will use it in a way to build you in such a way that your life will give him glory and it'll be really good for your soul. Let's pray.